Well, Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10. I uh, want you to uh, turn there if you would. And I just want to be a blessing to you tonight. Another uh, very practical message this evening. And certainly want to uh, challenge you, yet encourage you and all of that. Uh, so Mark chapter 10. Uh, if you would stand, please, let's read the Bible together. We're going to read verses 32 through 45 together. Personally, Mark is my favorite gospel account. I know most people would probably say John, and you certainly can't go wrong with John, but I really, really like Mark. I love how it's a lot of action. Uh, I love how he doesn't mince his words. He just kind of gets right after it, and I just really enjoy the gospel of Mark. Let's read in verse 32. It says, And they were in the way. Going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus went before, him, before them, and they were amazed. I'd like to stop right there. I bet it was amazing just hanging out with him. Could you imagine what one 24-hour period would be like with Jesus? I mean, I'd give every last penny I've got to hang out with the earthly Jesus for 24 hours. I mean, I bet they were just kind of, I get the impression that they were kind of walking behind him, and they're just looking at him. You know, like what, like what Peter said one time, what manner of man is this? I mean, they're just wa- watching him walk, and they were amazed. It says as they followed, they were also afraid. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto, them, uh, unto him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. And they shall mock him. And shall scourge him, or whip him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. Now I want to pause there again. He's just said, listen, I'm going to get beaten up, spit upon, and killed. And here's who's going to do it, where they're going to do it. And it's almost as if that doesn't even register them. They said, hey, we want you to do us a favor. I mean, how insensitive is that? In fact, what they're asking in verse 35 is they're, they're kind of, you ever had your wife do this before? A fellas, they kind of said, now, I want you to promise me you'll do something. And I, I, I've lived long enough to say, not until you tell me what it is. But that's what they were asking him. And he said unto them, finally, what would that I, ye that I should do for you? They said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit one on the right hand and the other on the left hand in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. Now how many of you get the idea that they weren't talking about the same thing here? I imagine Jesus chuckles a little bit and he says unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of and with the baptism that I am baptized with all shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be the servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give his life a ransom for many. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help me to communicate the truth of your word here. May it challenge and help uh, the people of this good church. Thank you for their faithfulness. Thank you for their anticipation and enthusiasm tonight. 
And I pray that you would reward us by your spirit, by speaking to our hearts through your word. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. Thank you. Maybe see. Appreciate you standing so long. I'd imagine several of you have read this book, but Jim Collins, back in 2001, wrote a best-selling book uh, called Good to Great. Um, it's basically a book that analyzes companies that were good companies, but ended up becoming great companies. And so he wanted to figure out what made these good companies become great. It, it showcases 11 specific companies that transform from an average company to an amazing company. These are companies like Walgreens, Gillette, Pitney Bowes. Those are some examples of the companies. Um, he's kind of famous for saying this, and I've used this so many times. He says, listen, when you want to uh, get your organization going, he said, you've got to get the wrong people off the bus. You've got to get the right people on the bus. And you've got to get the right people in the right seats on the bus. And it's such a, such a great way to, to put that. But one of the first things that he talks about in this book, and by the way, this is going to be a little lengthy illustration here. And if you're thinking, well, this isn't business class. Stay with me. I'm going somewhere. Uh, what he says, one of his very first uh, uh, components of a good to great company is he said they have to have a level five leader. Now, that, that would resonate with us because maybe you've heard Lee Robertson. He was famous for saying this. John Maxwell's been famous for saying this. Everything rises and falls on leadership. So he starts with leadership. Now, now honestly, I've sat there before and I thought, does everything? Now, you know, I think you could maybe make a case, not everything, but, but a whole lot sure does. So he says a good to great company has to have a level five leader. Now, I'll spare you the details. I won't go through a level one, level two, level three, but let me just kind of give you the idea of what a level four leader is, okay? Stay with me here. He defines it this way. An effective leader who catalyzes commitment to and a vigorous pursuit of a clear and compelling vision, stimulating higher performance standards. Now, if you're sitting here going, say what? Here's what he said. He said a level four leader is somebody who is a visionary. That's a level four leader, a visionary. Listen, I don't know about you, uh, Brother Preston, but I have had people visit my church. I've sat in their living room, and they've said this to me. What is your vision for the church? And that's a tricky question, right? I mean, I don't know necessarily that I have a five-year plan, 10-year plan, 25-year plan. I, I don't know that. I've always answered that question and said, my vision for the church is I want to be a biblical church. And if we can be a biblical church, we'll be a healthy church. And if we are a healthy church, then all of these things will fall into line. And, and, and so that's maybe my, uh, my, my answer to that. But this level four leader is a visionary. I mean, they're, they're a person that can see it before it's happened. They've got a bird's eye view of what's going on, and, and they're excited about it. it, it what he's saying in a level four leader... It, he said, that's somebody with a strong personality. You know, that's what our world says, right? Our world says that if you're going to be a leader, you have got to be a type A personality. But you know, the truth of the matter is, is some people can be great leaders without being type A. But we just figure that somebody, that, that they walk into a room and their, their personality is so commanding and, and, and they, they just light up and they're electric and they've got all this energy and people just naturally gravitate to them. But, but again, Jim Collins says that's a level four leader. He says these are determined people. They're, they're basically what we would call power leaders. But here's what he says in the book. And I quote, We were surprised, shocked really, to discover the type of leadership required for turning a good company into a great one. Compared to high-profile leaders with big personalities who make headlines and become celebrities, the good to great leaders, please don't miss this, are a paradoxal blend 
of personal humility and professional will. I thought that was an interesting statement. A paradoxal blend of personal humility and professional will. Now, you say, Pastor, like, I'm not following you here, man. Can you get to the Bible, please? This isn't business class. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Jim Collins devoted 15,000 hours of research for this book. He studied 6,000 articles. He generated 2,000 pages of interview transcripts of CEOs. He created 384 million bytes of computer data to come up with a conclusion that Jesus gave in seven Bible verses 2,000 years ago. When we come to our text in verse 32, this is the third announcement of the ultimate conclusion of Jesus' ministry. This is the third time that Jesus has said, I am going to be delivered into the hands of sinful men and I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to raise from the dead. In the first two announcements previous to this, all he did was said just that. He told them what was going to happen. But the game is going to kind of change just a little bit here in this account because now he's not just announcing what would happen to him. He is announcing where this would happen and he was, is announcing who is going to do this to him. But you see very quickly that in verse 34, it just seems to go right over their head. This was not some kind of truth that they wanted to think about. They didn't want to think about their, their beloved rabbi, their master, their teacher, their friend. They didn't want to think about him dying. They didn't want to think about the ramifications of what he was saying about it. It did not fit their agenda uh, of what the Messiah would be and what he would do. And so it just kind of, they just kind of let it go over their head. They just kind of, oh, yeah, 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 sure. And they just kind of let it go past them. Why? Because they had crowns on their mind. They did not have crosses on their mind. They were thinking something totally different. And so you see that we get down to verse 35 and they say, hey, listen, listen, promise us you'll do this. Promise me you will do this. And Jesus says, well, what is it you want me to do? And they said, when you come into your kingdom, when you come into your glory, let us, James and John, sit one on the right hand and one on the left hand. Now, I want to pause right there. I think sometimes we get really, we, we, we can be hard on the disciples. I think sometimes we can I think we see how they were insensitive to Jesus in his hour of need. I think we see cases like when Jesus is his deepest moment of despair and agony and asks them to pray with him. What do they do? They fall asleep. They deny him and turn tail and run when he's when he did, at his greatest need of support. And, and we just kind of see how they were thick-headed and they, 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 they kind of missed it. And, and we can be hard on them, but let's not be too hard on them because anybody else in this room ever been thick-headed and hard to teach? Okay, so, so I mean, we, we kind of have some of the same characteristics and tendencies that they have, but we, we know the whole panoramic view of the story, and so sometimes we're hard on them. And I think we can come to this text and we can kind of be hard on them, like, how could they ask for that? How presumptuous was it for them to ask to do that? that like, who do they think that they are? But I want to just give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt there, and, and say this to you this evening. There's nothing wrong with wanting to aspire to greatness. I mean, that's what they wanted. Can, can we be elevated to some high position? Can we have a seat of greatness? We want to be great with you. I mean, again, I, I, I'm going to get to what they were really saying, but, but let's just give them some credit here that they wanted to be great. Let's think about it. Uh, how about teachers? 
I was an adjunct professor at a Bible college for, for a little time, and, and I teach a Bible class in our Christian school. I work with educators as we have a Christian school. Uh, we have some college professors that are members of our church, and I guarantee if we go around the room and there's educators in this room or you've been around educators, there are teachers that could tell you many stories of intelligent students who have a lot of brain capacity and power, but yet they do not uh, aspire to greatness and therefore, they waste the intellectual prowess that God has given them. And that frustrates teachers. Because they think, this kid is smart. They're brilliant. They've got the tools. They've got the assets. But they have no desire to be great. Therefore, they don't apply themselves in their schooling. And they, they don't do well. That's frustrating for a teacher. We could talk about coaches. Your pastor does some coaching. I know I've coached. I've done some baseball, I've done some basketball, and sometimes you can look at an athlete and you can say, that kid has got all the tools. They've got athletic ability, they've got athletic opportunity, but there's nothing inside of them that aspires to be great, therefore they're frustrated. Because they don't, they don't apply themselves, they don't work hard, they don't, they don't give of themselves, and so they just are content with being mediocre, and that's all they'll ever be as far as their sports uh, acumen is. Listen, I know for a fact that I can tell you this. As a pastor, I know that I've watched people and I've looked at them and I thought, they have so much ability. They have so much natural giftedness. They have so much that they could do for the church, that they could do for the glory of God. But there is nothing inside of their breast that wants to be great for the glory of God. Therefore, they wallow in the great enemy of all of us, and that is the enemy of mediocrity, and they do nothing for the glory of God. It's frustrating. So let's give these men some, some credit that there was something inside of them that said, we want to be Great. And I want you to understand tonight, the problem is not wanting to be great. In fact, I would say to you tonight that if we just ended on that note, if we all left here saying, I want to be great in my spiritual life, then we would have had a good meeting tonight. But, yeah, amen. All right, okay. Uh, that, that, would have, that would help us if we all said, you know, I, I'm tired of just being what I am spiritually. I want to be more than what I am spiritually. Look, I'm pressing on the upper way. New heights I'm gaining every day. I want to lead on to higher ground. That's, that's what they were saying. The problem is not wanting to be great. In fact, more of us should want to be great. The problem is how do we define greatness? And the problem is... Why do we want to be great? That's where the problem lies. Now, I don't know that too many of us would be as open and honest about this as the disciples were. I mean, to go up to Jesus and say, we want to sit on your right hand and your left. I mean, I don't know many of us would be that presumptuous about it. But we are still like the disciples in that we show that we do not grasp what it means to be a true, passionate follower of, the, of a crucified Savior who, according to this text, gave his life a ransom for many. So tonight, I want to just point out to you from our text two elements of greatness. Do you want to be great? I Again, I hope that people in this room are saying, hey, I'm here on a Tuesday night. I want my spiritual life to be excellent. I want there to be greatness in my spiritual walk with Jesus Christ. If that's the case, then here, there needs to be two elements of greatness because remember, we have to define greatness properly 
And we have to also decide why do we want that. All right, so number one, I want you to see this. Greatness is willing to suffer. Greatness is willing to suffer. When they say, Lord, we want to ask you, uh, we want to sit on the right hand and on the left, notice what Jesus does. He turns the question on them. He says, uh, can you drink of the cup that I drink of? Can you be baptized with my, my baptism? And of course they say, we can. And again, I, I point out that you, you get the idea they're not, they're not talking about the, the same thing there, are, are they? Um, I, I hope this doesn't uh, lessen your respect for me, but uh, the need for me to turn in my man card. But I'll be honest with you, I, I like musicals. Uh, my wife and I sometimes will go to a musical or something like that. I, I, I like them. And at our Christian school, we, we put on a musical every year. And pretty good. Our, our Christian school has about 230 students in it from kindergarten to 12th grade. And so for a school our size, uh, it, they do a really, really good job. And a couple of years ago, our drama teacher, who's a man, by the way, big burly man, too. So if you call him a girl, he just pounds you, you know. And so uh, he came to me and he said, Pastor, I was going to see... Uh, uh, for the musical this coming school year, I wanted to see if you would be okay with this. He said, I want to do Fiddler on the Roof. Well, Fiddler on the Roof is my favorite musical of all time. And I told him, I said, I will allow you to do Fiddler on the Roof here in the school this upcoming school year under one stipulation. He said, what's that? I said, I have to be in it. He said, no problem. He said, I've got the perfect role for you. I said, what is that? He said, you can be the rabbi. And so the Baptist preacher was the rabbi, man. I mean, you should have seen my dance moves, man. They were awesome, you know, and I, I, I was in that play. Well, if you've ever seen The Fiddler on the Roof, it's about a, a group of Russian Jews that are expelled from their village in, in, in a period of time in, in Russia. And uh, there's one particular scene where the main character, who is a dairy farmer, uh, he has a daughter. And the local butcher wants to marry his daughter. And so his wife says, I want you to go and talk to the butcher. And she knows that he wants to ask for his daughter's hand in marriage. And the father doesn't know this. And the mother just wants him to go and talk to the butcher. And so when he goes and talks to the butcher, he has it in his mind that the butcher wants to buy his milk cow. But the butcher is asking about his daughter. So every time he speaks, he's speaking about the daughter, and the man is hearing about the cow. And every time he talks about the cow, this man is hearing about the daughter. And it's a very comical conversation because neither one of them is talking about the same thing. So these men, they go up to Jesus and they say, Oh, we can drink of your cup and we can be baptized with your baptism. And they're not talking about the same thing. What are they talking about? What is Jesus talking about? I believe that when Jesus says, can you drink of my cup, I believe he's talking about inward suffering. So where do you get that from? Well, I think that you might recognize this cup. We already made reference to it a little bit. And remember when Jesus was in agony the night before he would be betrayed into the hands of men. And he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember? And he, he's down on his knees and he's praying. And it's that account where he's, he's so intense in his prayer life that the, the, the veins and, and capitularies in his head, they're, they're starting to bleed. And he, he bleeds these sweat drops of blood as we sing about sometimes. And, and he's in this intense agony and what does he pray in that moment some of you that have been around the bible you know what he prays he says this father if it be possible let this cup pass from me 
Now, there's been a lot of speculation as to what that cup is. I think most Bible students would agree that we don't really believe that he was saying, I don't want to die the physical anguish on the cross. I think most Bible students, and certainly this is what I would subscribe to, is that what Jesus was saying is he was saying, Father, I don't want to go through the inward anguish of being separated from you. I mean, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. For all of eternity, the pre-existence of Christ, the eternality of Christ, He has always been in communion and fellowship with His Father. And for a moment on the cross, what is going to happen is the Father is going to turn His face away as Jesus literally becomes the sin of the world and the wrath and judgment of God is poured upon Him. And at that moment, that's when He cries out, My God, not my Father, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus is saying to these men, Do you understand the cup that I'm going to drink is going to bring me so much inward suffering and agony? Are you able to handle inward suffering? Are you able to do that? Now, in their ignorance, they say, we can. But I think he was talking about inward suffering. Then he says, are you able to be baptized with my baptism? What does he mean by that? I think he was talking about outward suffering. What is baptism? We saw... When a sweet young lady get baptized on Sunday. Praise the Lord for that. What happened is she got saved. You understand what being saved is? I took my faith. I placed it in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is my only hope in order to have my sins forgiven and my relationship with God restored. That's being saved. And that's an inward experience, isn't it? Of course, we make mouth confession. But what is the mouth confession? It's an expression of what happens in the heart. So I often say this about baptism. It is an outward expression of an inward experience. So Jesus says, hey, can you drink of this cup? Inward suffering. Are you able to be baptized with a baptism that I'm baptized with? He's talking about outward sufferings. And again, the disciples ignorantly say, well, we can. We can. Because they were thinking differently. Well, what were they thinking? Again, I, I can't crawl into their minds. I don't know entirely, but as I've meditated on it and thought about it and studied it, I believe they were thinking cup is a, a time of celebration. You know, here's one thing. I, I've been able to travel the world a little bit. I pastored a church in California that was extremely multicultural. Here's one thing I've learned about every ethnicity and cultural group in this world. They like to eat. Can I at least get an amen for eating here in this crowd? Okay, I figured. This is a Baptist church, isn't it? I mean, like, we, we get together and we eat. I mean, if you celebrate a birthday, an anniversary, a, a quinceanera, I mean, it does, I don't care what it is, somebody's going to say, get you something to eat and get you something to drink. I mean, they're thinking, Jesus, can you drink in my cup? They're thinking, yeah, we can. <laughs> Absolutely. That's, that speaks, I, I think they're thinking, celebration. Think about it, baptism, what was baptism? In a lot of ways, baptism is a, is a time of rejoicing. I mean, I'm sure you see this all the time. Somebody gets saved, and I say, hey, well, you want to get baptized? And they say, hey, let's wait two weeks because I'm going to get my family to come. And I'll tell you, they will. They'll, they'll fill up a pew. They'll fill up two pews because family come. Hey, I mean, even family is not saved. I mean, they'll come like, oh, you're getting baptized. Okay, cool. And it's a time of, of, of kind of celebration, a symbol of renewal. I've had people, I'm sure you've had this. I've had people just show up to my church, and they know that they need something, but they don't know about the gospel. They don't know exactly what it is they need, but they'll just come and say, hey, will you baptize me? 
They don't understand what baptism is. They just, they just know they need something. And they know that baptism is kind of a symbol of renewal. And so, so these guys are saying, yeah, we can be baptized. Yeah, we, we can handle the celebration and we can handle the renewal. Yeah, bring that on. We, we, we can do that. But that's not what Jesus was talking about. And don't you like that little, little addendum it, it kind of puts in there? He says there that uh, they said unto him, we can. And Jesus says, ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of. With the baptism that I am baptized, wherewithal shall you be baptized? I think what Jesus is looking at, I mean, he's, he's looking, think about it, guys. He's looking at James and John. And he says, you will. You, you will. Think about it. James was the first one to lose his head and be martyred. Outward suffering. You don't think there was inward anguish while he was awaiting his execution? Jesus knew. How about John? John didn't face the acts of an executioner. What happened to John? John was exiled on an island all by himself. You don't think there was a cup to drink of inward anguish as he's all alone on an island by himself? Cast out for simply obeying the will of God in his life? Well, Jesus knew. You sure will drink of the cup. You sure will be baptized. The great point of verses 33 and 34 is this right here. Jesus' suffering was not accidental. Jesus was willing to suffer. Now again, I, I understand. Jesus' suffering was unlike the suffering of anyone else in this world. Nobody has experienced the anguish that Jesus has suffered. But the point is this, is God doesn't necessarily expect us to suffer as he suffered. But he's trying to get us to see that suffering is a reality for a true disciple of Jesus Christ. In fact, another great example is Paul. Remember Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he talks about his beatings, his imprisonments, the death threats he went through, the sh shipwrecks, the robberies, the pain, the hunger, all the things that he went through. And does anybody else in here read that and think, I'm a wimp? Does anybody else read that and go, I really don't want to be able to relate to him? But here's what God spoke to me about that, is God may, certainly cannot ask me to suffer like Jesus. No one will ever be able to do that. And God has not asked me to suffer like Paul suffered. But God has called me to suffer. And I must, like Jesus, willingly drink my cup and willingly take my baptism as he willingly did those things. I think that that runs contrary to the message of many in Christianity today. Today what we hear about is success. I mean, we, we hear sermons that are all geared up for our success. Listen, I'll be the first to tell you, if you obey spiritual and scriptural principles, your life will be more successful. There's no question. I mean, if people who are lost follow the principles of money management found in the Bible, they will make more money. There's no doubt about that. So the Bible's not against you being successful. I think some people flock to church because that's what they want to hear. I think a lot of times we, we just want to hear messages of comfort, messages of blessing. In fact, what I have noticed is that for many of us, 
what we, what we find in Christianity is we see suffering as a problem that is to be avoided. And whenever it happens, it's a problem that has to be solved. And I think we make the mistake that the disciples were making in this case. You say, what do you mean? I think that they were looking at things from the wrong side of the fence. You say, what do you mean? Well, back in verse 32, what was Jesus talking about? Excuse me, verse uh, 33 and 34, when he talks about his situation. What was he talking about? He was talking about the cross, wasn't he? I want you to think for a moment, why would they avoid the suffering that he's talking about? Because they were looking at the cross from the wrong angle. Listen, our church is like your church. We have a baptismal. We're a Baptist church. We dunk them. We got a baptismal in the back here, and we've got a cross at, in, in our baptismal just like you do. Now, also, look, look, can I just push the amen button for a second? Aren't you glad there's no Jesus on that cross right there? Hey, he's a risen Lord. He's not on that cross anymore. But think about this cross that you have. It's a beautiful cross. Yours is some kind of uh, pewtered metal or something like that there that's ornate and nice. You have some glowing lights behind it. And, but I want you to understand when the disciples looked at that cross, they weren't looking at it like we look at it. I mean, to the disciples, I mean, when they saw what you're looking at there, they saw defeat. I mean, that's where people who had been captured, people who, who, who were done for, who were defeated, that's what they saw when they saw that. But folks, that's not what we see when we see that, right? In fact, we sang about it tonight. We don't see defeat. What do you think we see? We see victory. We sang about it. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. So when he said, hey, the same, look, look, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and I'm going to be crucified. They're seeing defeat, but, but friend, we see it from a total different angle. That's, that is... Right there is where Michael Jones found, found victory. I was saved from my sin. That changed everything in my life. You say, well, preacher, haven't you failed the Lord at times in your Christian walk all more than I'd care to tell you about? But I'm telling you this, that when I get back to the cross and I realize that the just is my justifier and, and, and he is my, my, the, the grace for my overcoming, let me tell you, there have been many victories that have been found because of that cross. Amen. Friend, when they looked at the cross, they saw pain. Nails driven in hands. Blood being shed. Pain and suffering. But friend, when we look at the cross, we don't see that. We see by his stripes, we've been healed. We see hope there. To them, the cross represented death. It's almost comical, really. I mean, I would imagine there are some ladies in this room, maybe even some men that have a, have a chain around your neck and have a, a, a piece of gold jewelry in the shape of a cross. We, we decorate our homes with it. Could you imagine if I walked in here tomorrow night for church and I was wearing a gold chain and I had an electric chair on my, a little charm on my necklace? You'd say, well, that's awful bizarre. Well, that's what it would be like us wearing a cross around our necklace uh, in their time and age. Why? Because they, they looked at it, that, that represented death. Is that what that represents to you? It's quite the opposite, isn't it? It represents life. Well, I think sometimes we as Christian people look at suffering the way these men looked at the cross. 
Man, we got to avoid that. We got to stop that. We got to get out of that. But that's because we're looking at it from the wrong angle. We often look at our suffering from an earthly angle. When the Bible actually teaches us to look at our suffering from a heavenly angle, let me share with you what Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians 4 17. He says, For our light affliction. Let's stop right there. He called it light affliction. Go back and read 2 Corinthians 11. You call that light? How could he say that? Because he looked at it from a heavenly perspective. He said, our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Boy, that's true, right? Our life is but a vapor. It appears for a little while and vanishes away. Some of you that are, are, are older, you know. You blink and your life is gone. You, 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 man, how many times did people tell me, Brother David, when my kids were your age, hey, you better enjoy them while you can because you blink and they're going to be gone. And, and it's so true. It's so true, isn't it? Why? Because it's for a moment. And it worketh us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's how Paul could deal with those shipwrecks and those imprisonments and those beatings and those death threats and those hungerings and those pains because he knew this is momentary. And what I'm going through right now, it's just earthly. But it's all for something eternal. There's a great, great quote from Martin Luther King Jr. He said this, To our most bitter opponents we say, We shall match your capacity to inflict, inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. I thought that was such a good quote. And would to God that we would aspire to greatness but realize what is greatness. It's a willingness to suffer if need be. Let's move on to the second point and be done. Greatness is also willing to serve. That's where he gets into the latter half of the passage. These are verses that we're so familiar with. Whosoever shall be great among you shall be your minister, and whosoever you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. And so far in this text, we've observed a lot of worldliness by the disciples. I grew up in a generation where I heard hard preaching, and I like hard preaching. Listen, I'll be honest with you. I, I like it when a guy kind of gets with it. I'm not talking about he needs to yell the whole time, but, but let's just be honest. When a guy gets, gets a little excited every once in a while, it helps us. You say, what does it help you do? It, it, it helps you stay awake. I mean, if you're starting to drift down, like, what? You know, that just wake you up, you know. <laughs> and so I, I, I like a guy that'll get with it. I mean, like, like I'm not going to let a politician out-preach me. I let a basketball coach get more passionate about a basketball game than I do about the Bible. And so I heard preachers preach, and they'd preach hard, man. I mean, they'd yell and stomp and spit and holler and all that. And they'd talk about worldliness. And they'd always preach about movie houses and what you wore and the, the, the bands that you listened to and the music you had playing in your radio. And that's worldly, you know, and they'd preach that way. And I'm not saying that's bad. I think there's probably a need for that from time to time. I, I really do. And I think our generation here maybe, maybe has gotten soft on some of those areas, whereas that generation might have been too hard on those areas. But the point I'm trying to make is that's all they would ever attack as being worldly. But the truth of the matter is, is not just what you do and what you watch and what you wear is worldly. A lot of times the ideas that you have are very worldly, and a lot of times the church doesn't say anything about it. And so I come to this text, and I see a lot of worldliness going on in this passage. A lot of worldliness. 
And you'll notice it doesn't say anything about what they were wearing. They certainly weren't going to R-rated movies, and I don't think they were listening to gangster rap. So well, where do you see worldliness? Okay, here's what I see. I see a lot of ambition. And these guys made sure they were in the front of the line. Did you notice? I love this. This makes me ch chuckle when I read it. It says there, uh, verse 41, And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. You, you know what that's saying there? They were mad at them. You know why they were mad? They didn't think of it first. Like those rascals, they went and asked. Why did we do that, you know? There's a lot of ambition going on between these guys. That's worldly. This me first attitude, get it while you can attitude, you don't think that's worldly? I got to get to the front line, get, get it me. You know, got to look out for number one. That, that's worldly way of thinking. Listen, folks, it might be dog eat dog out there, but it should not be dog eat dog in here. And too often in churches it is. Notice the overconfidence. We've already pointed this out. Can you drink of the baptism? Can you, can, you, can, you, can you drink of my cup? Can you be baptized with my baptism? We can. That's over, overconfidence. That's worldly. The Bible says don't, don't have any confidence in your flesh. These guys are like, yeah, we can do that. Look, I mean, these guys were full of it. Again, my favorite character is Peter. And you love Peter. One day he stands up when Jesus says, you guys, when, when I'm arrested, you all are going to bail on me. And you know the story. Peter stands up and he goes, I don't think so. He said, I've been watching Thomas, and he doubts everything you say. And uh, I, he's going to deny you. I believe that. Matthew, all he's ever cared about is money. He'll deny you too. James and John, they're only looking out for themselves. I bet they'll bail on you too. But not old Pete. No, sir. Old Pete's true and blue. I'll never deny you. Jesus says, shut up and sit down. Because you're going to deny me not just once, but three times. And you'll do it before the rooster crows twice. What was Peter's problem? Jesus said, I can't use you, Peter, until you're converted. Not until, he didn't mean until you're saved. He said until you're changed. Until you stop being so overconfident in yourself. Until you're humbled a little bit. I can't use you until you're humbled and you change. These guys had a lot of, lot, lot of worldliness going on. Here's another thing. Competitiveness. We want to sit by Jesus. That sounds like my kids. I'm sitting by dad. Shotgun. We got little kids. I mean, these guys, all the way to the Last Supper, they were fighting over who gets to sit by Jesus. And there's a lot of competitiveness. The Gospel of John, it's almost comical. Did you notice that in the Gospel of John, it's the only Gospel record where we're told that two, two disciples race to the empty tomb. And in the Gospel of John, it's the only one that says their names. And John points out that he beat Peter to the tomb. And I can't think of any scriptural value in that information other than John just wanted everybody to know he beat Peter. <laughs> That's what these guys were doing all the time. And so Jesus has this overwhelming sense of need to go over a lesson that he's taught them before. He said, there is a way that the world seeks to lead, and there's a way that God wants you to lead. You know, one time, Brother Preston, I had a lady come up to me, and she caught me in, the, in our fellowship hall, and she said, Pastor, Pastor, I said, yes, ma'am. She said, I've been meaning to talk to you. I said, well, what can I do for you? This is exactly what she said to me. She said, I want to be in charge of something. Oh. 
Right then and there, I made it up my mind that I, I would never let anybody be in charge of anything that decided they wanted to be in charge of something. Jesus had to say, listen, listen. In the world, everybody wants to be the president. They want to have a title. They want to be in charge. But not so in my disciples. That's not the way it should be. He says, rather than leveraging authority, God's people are supposed to be servants of all, he says. See, effective spiritual leaders are those who demonstrate their heart for people by loving them. And by serving them. Now listen, this question isn't original with me. You've probably heard it before. But somebody asked the question, how do you know when you have a servant's heart? That's the question somebody asked. How do you know when you have a servant's heart? And the answer they gave is this. By how you act when you're treated like one. Now I'm going to testify for a minute. Sometimes I don't always act like a servant, and I bristle when I'm treated like one. Like, I'm going to illustrate to you. This isn't my church, so I can say things like this when I'm in a different church. I have a real pet peeve. Well, I've got lots of them. <laughs> I just don't think you have time to hear them. But here's something that really irritates me, Brother David. Sometimes when I'm in my church, I'll be talking to somebody. And let's say I'm talking to you. You're my brother, and I'm talking to you. And uh, we, we have a good connection, and, and you're sharing something with me. You're, you're, you're talking about maybe a struggle that you're having personally, and you're saying, Pastor, you know, what do I do about this, and can you pray with me about this? And, and we're talking. Or maybe you're telling me about some, somebody in your family that's hurting. And, and the other day, a, a brother was sharing something with me about a family member who was hurting. I mean, he's literally weeping as he's burdened about this, and we're, we're having this conversation. And over here, somebody will do this to me. Pastor! Hey, pastor! And this is what they do that really is a pet peeve to me. Come here! Hey, come here! And that really rubs me the wrong way because, because I'm talking to this brother here. Even if, even if I'm just talking to you about the football game, that's rude. You've just interrupted my conversation. And I was taught as a little kid, you don't do that. And, and here's somebody inter, inter, interrupting me. And here I'm talking about just something personally. And you're telling me, come here. And here's what, here's what swells up in me. I'm not a dog. I feel like they're going, here, boy, here, boy. And they're expecting me to go, okay, we're done talking now. You know, and, and run over to you. And usually it's something stupid, like, you know, the other day, I was, like, I, I, you just interrupted me for this, and, and you called me, come here, boy. You know, that, that frustrates me. But, but I get convicted by that sometimes. Because what are they doing? In some respects, they're putting me at their beck and call as if I'm their servant. And there's something inside of my ego and my pride that resents being treated as a servant. I'm the pastor. But Jesus says, listen, that's how the world thinks. Not so among you. If you want to be great, learn to serve. Now, I will tell you, it's going to be unpleasant sometimes. It's going to be dirty sometimes. But it will be rewarding. I'll close with this. In March of 1995, the New England Pipe Cleaning Company was working under the streets of a city, Revere, Massachusetts. 
Their job was to clean out a 10-inch sewer line. Now you can imagine, not the funnest of jobs. I've never had to clean out a 10-inch sewer line, but I, I can tell you this, I've got three daughters. My daughters have big, thick, long hair, all three of them. And they share a bathroom, a Jack and Jill style rooms, and they all three share the same bathroom. And every once in a while, some of you know where I'm going, every once in a while they'll come down the stairs and they'll say, um, and they always do it like this, um, dad, um, our bathtub's not draining real well. And so I know that, that, that what that means. My wife's not going to do it. My daughters aren't going to do it. I got two bonehead sons. They're not going to do it. And so what do you do? I go and I get a screwdriver and I go and I get a Walmart bag. Praise, praise the Lord for Walmart bags. There's a billion things you can do with a Walmart bag. And I've got a tool in my, in my garage and I go out and I get that tool and, and I go upstairs and I take that screwdriver and I pull the cap off of that drain and I take that tool and I stick it down in that pipe. And, and I love to tell this story because everybody starts to go, ugh. Because that's why my wife won't do it. And that's why my daughters don't want to do it. That's why they don't even want to be in the room while you're doing it. And you get down in there and you run that tool down in that drain and you pull it out. And I'm talking some of the nest. I mean, like, my girls, I think they're beautiful girls. And they've got, they'll curl their hair and they'll highlight their hair. And they'll do all of this to their hair. But I'm telling you, it is pretty nasty coming out of that shower drain. It ain't the same. There's all kind of gunk and muck and all kinds of gross stuff, and you get that, and it's hanging off of that tool, and you got to grab it and throw it in that bag and go back down in there and get it out and see if the thing's running, and finally it's going down, and, and you go downstairs, and you tie that Walmart bag in a knot, and you walk through the living room like this, and, and they won't even look at you as you're coming through. They just kind of turn away and go, did you get it? You know, and it's just kind of nasty. So I, I can't imagine these men underneath the streets of a city Digging through a 10-inch sewer pipe. The workers, when they did this job, found many of the usual items that you would think were clogging those pipes. But they were also told by their employers that whatever they found, they could keep. So the bad news is they had to do a really unpleasant job, and they found a lot of nasty stuff. The good news is, they found 61 rings. They found rare vintage coins. They even found pure antique silverware in those pipes. The point I'm trying to make with that story it's something I alluded to in another message this week. Is sometimes when we serve, we have to get down in the muck and the gunk of life. And it's unpleasant. It's dirty. It stinks. But the good news is, as you get down in there and you start going through, and you serve others, there's a tremendous reward. Tremendous reward. Can't we just end on this? Aren't you thankful that that passage ends? For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but ministered and give his life a ransom for many. Aren't you thankful that the God of all glory came down and got right in the middle of our mess? Yes. 
got his hands dirty in our sinful lives and served us so that he could redeem us and make something out of us? That ought to cause us to say, I want to be great. Like he was great. I want my life to try and impact somebody else's life the way Christ's life has impacted my life. Let me just ask you a few questions tonight. Question number one may be the most important question. It's the most generic question, but I think it may be the most important question. Do you desire to be great, or are you just content with being mediocre? Listen, I've been in this game, if you will, long enough to know that some of you will come to the service tonight. You'll hear what has been said tonight. You came in mediocre, and you'll leave mediocre. I mean, that is no disrespect. I'm just saying, some of us just don't have that spark that says, I want to be great. But I hope that the Holy Spirit tonight will stir something up inside of us. It will say, you know what? I want more out of my Christian life than I currently have. I, I want to know him more. I, I want to be great, but I want to be great the way he defines great. And I want to be great, but I don't want to be great for my name's sake. I want to be great for his glory and for his purposes. And listen, again, I'm not trying to be melodramatic tonight. I'm not, I'm not trying to work you up into some kind of uh, uh, emotional experience. But I think it would be beneficial for us all to find a place to kneel and make an altar and just say, God, would you please give me the desire to be greater than what I am. So I ask you again, do you desire to be great or are you content to be mediocre? Number two, do you avoid suffering at all costs or do you willingly accept it when it comes? Because I'm going to first tell you, I, I don't run and try and find suffering. But I must gladly bear it when God sends it. Number three is this, who are you actively serving? Maybe I could ask you that question that I posed a moment ago. How do you react when you're treated like a servant? And I ask you finally, what have you discovered in your process of serving others? 